Well, our text last Sunday was to end the year. My times are in his hand. Psalm 31 verse 15. Uh, today, it's the first Sunday of a new year. And here is a text for this occasion. John 3 and verse 30. He, that is the Lord Jesus, he must increase, <coughs> but I must decrease because those words are spoken by John the Baptist now we're all unique aren't we there's nobody quite like you you might say perhaps that's a good thing but there's nobody else like you in all the world you're all unique but I think we could say of John the Baptist couldn't we that he is truly unique as a very unusual man very different to anyone else in the Bible and in history. He was sort of uniquely unique. His place in history was prophesied 700 years before in Isaiah and 400 years before in Malachi. His birth was announced by the angel Gabriel to his father uh, before he was conceived. We thought about that a few weeks ago before Christmas. Um, his name was given by the angel. They were going to call his name after his father, but the angel had said, no, his name must be John. His parents, by the way, humanly speaking, couldn't have a child. And so he was a very special child, an impossible child in that sense. Now, he leapt in the womb when his mother greeted Mary, carrying the Lord Jesus. How remarkable that is. It seems he was regenerated in the womb and became a Christian, as it were, before he was even born. That's... That is unique. That is not the way God does things. He grew up in the desert. He dressed uniquely. You can't go to Fat Face and buy the stuff that John the Baptist was wearing. He ate uniquely. I don't think you could go into the food hall in town to eat what he ate. And he preached uniquely. When all around the Pharisees were preaching law-keeping, that was the big thing. He was preaching repentance, consciousness of sin, and cleansing from that sin. In a way, he looked like an Old Testament prophet, didn't he? He sounded like an Old Testament prophet, but he said, I'm not Elijah. I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. That is exactly what the prophets had said he would do. And... Um, we don't study John the Baptist's preaching very much, but I've read it through over the last week, and it is quite incredible. John the Baptist is full of God in his preaching, <coughs> theologically, and full of a future hope to come. He's full of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suppose we could seal all this up by saying what uh, Jesus said uh, about this man. He said, Jesus said, uh, For I say to you, among those born of women... There is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Jesus was saying, literally, this man is unique. Now, his most famous saying is that in John 1, verse 29, isn't it? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Forever, John the Baptist will be associated with that great declaration. 
how to become a Christian. Look to the Lord Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. You're a sinner. He takes away sin. He's the sacrifice. Look to him. He is the preacher of Jesus. The saviour. But we're going to come to these words this afternoon. In John 3 and verse 30. Where John the Baptist encapsulates the Christian life. So, so really that behold the Lamb of God is how to become a Christian. In these words, these few words, he tells us how to live like a Christian. And you'll never become a Christian unless you look to where he points you to the Lord Jesus. But you'll never live as a Christian unless you follow where he points you in this verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. So we're going to look at this text uh, quite quickly, I think, so that we don't put around the steam. Um, uh, four headings, really. The importance of this text the difficulties that there are in this text, the helps that there are for us in the text, and the blessings that come from this text. So hopefully, like last week, it's just a simple text which we can take away, nail it on, as it were, last week to the end of the year, and this week, this text, at the beginning of the week, we can nail it on. This is for us. This is for you and me as Christians as we go into the coming year. So here's the first big heading then, the importance, the importance of this text in three ways, in three ways. This is the very heart of the gospel, isn't it? This is the very heart of the Christian life. Because it speaks about relationship, doesn't it? He must increase and I must decrease we made the point last week with our text last week didn't we it was personal my times and here again we have a text which when we read it when you read it at home not me preaching on it it's John saying it but it's there for you because what he's saying is this, to you, you can say this, you must say this. This is the essence of the Christian life. This is at the very heart of the Christian life. This is the relationship between you and the Lord Jesus. Its importance is that this text is at the very heart of the Christian life. Now, you may have all sorts of ideas about the Christian life, all sorts of questions about it. Uh, you're struggling with some parts of it. You're, you're a new Christian, and you're just getting to understand what it's all about and everything else. But here's something for you, and here's something for us as perhaps experienced Christians from a long time when I was converted at the age of 17, a long time ago. But here's something that is at the heart of what being a Christian is all about. It's about he... And I. Second thing. Here is the imperative for living the Christian life. 
Here's the imperative of the Christian life. What's an imperative? Well, it's here in this verse. Have a look at it. He must increase, but I must decrease. Must. Must. It hits you in the eye, doesn't it? Hits you between the eyes. Now, in the original, if you've got a, a, a New King James Bible, uh, I don't know what the um, other versions do, but uh, in the New King James it says, he must increase, but I, and then the must is in italics, which means <coughs> it wasn't there in the original. So the original Greek said this, he must increase, but I decrease. Now, translating the Bible is a difficult thing. And it's a contentious thing in some ways. But the translators of the 1611, and therefore the translators for the New King James, which comes from it, decided they would put another must in. And I think, I think they understood. I think they understood that this is the imperative of the Christian life and therefore they put must in twice now whether it's right or wrong it doesn't really matter but it's there isn't it it's a must it's not an optional thing the Christian life has a number of musts in it but this is certainly one of them this is an imperative whatever we do whatever else is in our Christian life However else we serve God, however many meetings we attend, however much Bible reading we do, however much everything else to do with the Christian life, this is an imperative. This has got to be done. This must be the case. It's really important, isn't it? Really, really important. Let me read to you what Paul said to the church at Philippi. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I count all things for loss, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is living out in those words the must of John the Baptist. What he's saying is this, whatever happens, Jesus Christ must grow and I must recede. One of the commentators calls this verse John's recessional. A recessional is when somebody just bows out, recedes, becomes smaller because somebody else is greater and more glorious. 
Here is the heart of the Christian life. Here is the imperative of the Christian life. To know my Jesus crucified far excels all else beside. You get the heart of the hymn writer? He'd realised this, hadn't he? And he wrote it down all those years ago for us to sing it. Number three. It's the direction of the Christian life. The direction of the Christian life. In fact, it's, it's like a plural really, isn't it? Because there's two directions here. Christ is going one way. Upwards. Increasing. Becoming more prominent. Becoming more noticeable in my life. Growing. So I appreciate him more. And glorify him more. And serve him more. That's one direction. And then there's me. And where am I going? In the opposite direction. Aren't I? He is increasing. He is more evident. He is more dominant. I am decreasing. I am less evident. I am less dominant. So here we have those three things. The heart of the Christian life. It's the imperative of the Christian life. It's the direction of the Christian life. All in this little text of John's. Now, let's be practical. Number two, the difficulties. <laughs> the difficulties with this text. This text is a battleground. This text is a battleground. Week after next, I'm down at the Open Air Mission Conference, and Roger's there as well. And uh, not very far away, you can go to Naseby, and you go to the battleground. And you can stand there, and there's a fence erected there, and some plaques, and so on. And it says, look out from here, and you see the battleground of Naseby where the roundheads fought the cavaliers, Cromwell and so on. And you look out and all you can see is cows and sheep and fields. It doesn't look like a battleground. But if you wind your way back in history to when those shouts and sounds and screams and calls and all those things, the smoke and of the battleground, it was a battleground. Now your Christian life doesn't perhaps look like a battleground. It looks quite nice and easy. But actually it's a battleground. And here's where it is. Because he must increase. And I must decrease. And that's a problem isn't it? Because what is the natural tendency of our hearts? Yes, we're saved, we've become Christians, we've beheld the Lamb of God, he has taken away our sin, we are following him, we have understood John's gospel. Now we are seeking to understand John's picture of the Christian life, and suddenly, even though I'm a Christian, 
And the old self doesn't win anymore. It still keeps coming up. This last week, David Campbell was speaking. Uh, He's a pastor up in uh, Preston. And he was speaking about holiness and speaking about the power to live the Christian life. And uh, he's a Scotsman. uh, And he has a way of saying the word grip. So he kept saying it. Sin has got us in its grip. Like that. In its grip. And that's where sin had us originally, in its grip. Well, now sin wants to get us back. It wants to come back up. Dominate again. And it doesn't want this. It doesn't want this direction. It doesn't want this imperative. It doesn't want this to be at the heart of my life. What it wants is it wants self there. And as you go on in the Christian life, you realize, boy, this is a battleground. If I really am serious about going on in the Christian life so that the Lord Jesus Christ becomes more obvious and more real and more glorious and more wonderful and more the centre of my life. And, and I love him so much because of what he has done for me. And I want to tell people about that. And I want that to continue to grow. We will find that the old man keeps coming up and saying, no, no, self, self back on the throne. And it's very hard, it's very hard for us. This is a battleground. This is the difficulty of this text. I was going to read something, actually. Where is it? Here it is. Do you know the book, um, The Holy War? So Bunyan wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. That's a great read. The Holy War is a great read too. And uh, probably Selma Jenkins' version of it, which is easier to read, because she puts it in modern English. And uh, what happens in the Holy War? There's a picture. There's a picture of a city. And this city is called Mansoul. <coughs> Mansoul. It's Bunyan putting the pictures together. And that soul, uh, that place is, is run by Diabolus, run by Satan. And Emmanuel, well, you know who he is, don't you? The Lord Jesus. Jesus comes and conquers the city in the story. And the city is just taken up with him. And it's wonderful. It's glorious. Things have changed in that city. It's a fabulous place to live. But there are one or two who have actually wheedled their way back into the city who aren't for Emmanuel. They're on the side of Diabolus. One of them is a man called False Security. And in the book it says this, Gradually, by his wily talking, he drew the people after him, and they soon began to feel more and more secure. They turned from talking to feasting, and then from feasting to sporting, and relaxing into careless ways as the days passed by. 
This is the way in which the man of Mansoul, men of Mansoul, first began to turn away from Emmanuel. They didn't visit him in his palace as before. They didn't notice that he no longer came to visit them. Though he still made his love feasts for them and called them to come, they were full of excuses and did not care to attend. They did not wait as before for his counsel, but began to be headstrong and self-confident, thinking that Mansoul was now so strong that nothing could ever change its conditions and its foes could never attack it again. And you see what he's doing, he's building up a picture of your heart, isn't he? He's saying there, that's what happens in your heart, that's what happens in my heart. We get complacent. False security. Well, I'm a Christian. And we forget we're in a battle. So we begin to slip. And it suddenly becomes, I must increase and then he decreases well what are the means to help us that's the third thing it's difficult we've said that what are the means to help us there's things in this text which I think if we plumb it a bit and unpack it a bit we can find things that actually help us and here's the first of them start in the right place. Start in the right place. You notice which way round it is. It's not I must decrease and he must increase. You notice that? It's he must increase and I must decrease. <coughs> we must follow that pattern. You see, if we take it the other way round, we get into legalism and drudgery. We, we tend to think, well, I've got to do something here. So what's going to happen is I'm going to deny myself and I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go around uh, looking very miserable. Uh, uh, and I, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm, that's completely wrong. Discipline without purpose is drudgery. Do you remember that book which we used to make a lot of at one stage? The, um, it was like a primer of, for the Christian life. That, that quote's from, from in there. Well, that's really helpful, isn't it? Discipline without purpose is drudgery. But if I begin in the right place, he must increase. Well, I've got to start thinking about him, haven't I? Do we think about the Lord Jesus enough? Do we think about him? Do we look at him in his word? Do we understand him? Do we see who he is? Do we know him? I've been thinking a lot about the, the book of the Song of Solomon and the Lord Jesus is in that book and he is portrayed there in the Old Testament in terms of absolute, absolute rapturous love. Like a, a husband and a wife in love. Are we in love with the Lord Jesus? Because we love him because he first loved us. 
And you see, if we begin with the Lord Jesus, if we start to think about him first, then that helps us to think rightly about us. If the increase begins first, the decrease comes. Because when you start to look at yourself compared to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you start to look within, you realize I am not the clever clogs. I think I am. But Jesus is the perfect one who we look to. F.B. Meyer says this, there is too much of the self-life in us all. But how can we be rid of this accursed self-consciousness and pride? Ah, we must turn our back on our shadow and turn our face towards Christ. I thought about that quote because, you know, with the grandchildren, you can play games, can't you? Uh, at night time, going along a path with the, uh, with the lights, uh, and, and you've got your shadow, and it seems like your shadow's following it, and then it actually goes in front of you, and so on. If we just keep following our shadow, if we keep looking at our shadow, we're looking at us, we're looking at a representation of us. If that's where our, it's where, it's where our heart is and our attention is. No, says Maya, we must think of the Lord Jesus Christ. So start in the right place uh, and then the second thing is attend to all the means of grace well we we bang on about this don't we all the time but we have to we, we mustn't get bored with this we mustn't get bored with the preacher saying you must come and hear christ exalted preaching you must come and sing christ uplifted hymns and songs you must come and worship in the temple of the lord jesus among his people and on the conference we were talking numbers were talking about people who sort of slip away and they come from time to time and they're sort of on the edges and so on and, and our hearts go out to them because they are missing out it is extremely difficult extremely difficult for this text to be worked out in our lives, if we do not attend on all the means of grace, if we don't attend to prayer and the reading of the scriptures and joining together <coughs> everything that Richard said this morning, the importance of gathering together, that's so, so important, attending to the means of grace. And then thirdly, stay away from the means of self. <laughs> Attend to the means of grace, but stay away from the means of self. Now, people get this wrong, and uh, they get this wrong by starting in the wrong place, and think that the Christian life is almost like monasticism, where we hide ourselves away, and we don't do anything, and you, you, you can't watch the telly, and you can't go and see a film, and you can't go to a football match, and, you, and, and there's so many lists, we become Pharisees, and so on. That's not the point. That's not the way of looking at it. John gives us the order, doesn't he? He must increase. But we are to stay away from those old means of self, which used to drag us down. There is no doubt about it that the sins that you were plagued with before you were a Christian will be sticking around. 
all the way through your Christian life. Sorry, but it's true. As I get older, I realize it's true. And new things come. New things come. My dear friend Courtney said to me when I went into the full-time ministry, say this to Richard, you will have temptations that you have never had before. And you will be shocked by them. Well, stay away from the means of self, the things that make self bigger. So we need to review, don't we? The new year is a time for review, isn't it? It's sitting down and saying, what is it that makes me self-satisfied? What is it glorifies self, me? What, what, what is it that uh, concentrates self all the time? What is self-indulgent about my life? What, what tends towards self-admiration? All those things we need to stick away from. Work with it. These are helps, hopefully. The more others magnify us, the more we must humble ourselves and fortify ourselves against the temptation of flattery and applause and the jealousy of our friends for our honour, remembering our place and what we are, says Matthew Henry. So we must be careful. There's that uh, quotation by... Uh, Martin Luther, when they said to Luther, look what you've achieved. Thinking about the Reformation. Look what you've achieved. And I can't remember the exact quotation. I know how it starts. He said, I did nothing. I did nothing. God did it all. There's a man. That, there's a man who's, who's learnt this text. Number four. Have no place in your life where Jesus doesn't reign. Francis Havergal. Oh, come and reign, Lord Jesus. Rule over everything and make me always loyal, my saviour and my king. And a little hymn by Eliza Hamilton. I don't know who she is, but she wrote this little hymn. My saviour, you have offered rest. Oh, give it then to me. The rest of ceasing from myself. To find my all in thee. This cruel self. Oh how it strives and works within my breast. To come between thee and my soul. And keep me back from rest. Oh Lord I seek a holy rest. A victory over sin. I seek that thou alone shouldst reign. Or all. Without. Within. And then fifthly, follow the best of examples. Follow the best of examples. That is one of the reasons why we put in a church. It's a great thing as a young Christian to be in a church. Because we've got examples around us. Now we're all poor examples at times, aren't we? We're a hopeless disaster at times. And we don't want young people or any people to follow us. But God has a wonderful way of covering over our faults. And causing us to be examples to others. And uh, John is such a good example, isn't he? John himself. Do you notice when Ben was reading, uh, and, and Ben, uh, uh, sorry, uh, and in this passage in John 1, uh, John says, it is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. 
John, John was always saying, I'm not the one. I'm not he. Don't follow me. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. Follow him. I'm not worthy to unloose his sandal strap. But John is such a good example, isn't he? Of the way in which he goes about things. And um, there's this passage in chapter 3, and verses 25 and 26. Look at that. There arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, Jesus, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, all are coming to him. They said, John, you know, your, your, your stake is, is, is dropping. You know, your popularity is dropping. Because everybody's going to him. To Jesus. John answers, doesn't he? A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Follow humble examples. And then there's an absolute cracking example here. I just love this. In verse 28, we just read that, verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. And what he's saying is this. Look, I am just the best man here. I, uh, somebody's going to have to tell me why, why at weddings do we call him the best man? Anybody? I, any idea? I don't know. Because surely he's not the best man. The best man's the groom. But we have this thing, the best man. Now, you know, after Ross and Susanna's wedding, did we all go outside and there's a, you know, a block of cameramen and they've got Matt out there and they're all taking pictures of him from all sorts of angles. And they're going to produce an album, The Best Man. Of course they don't. The big, the big name on the block, the, the person we're all interested in with his wife is the groom. Isn't that what John says here? He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, we would say today, the best man who stands and hears him, Rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. I'm the best man. He's asked me to be the best man. I'm his mate. But he's the man. He's the man. The day's about him and his wife, not about me. John is such a great example for us. Well, we're done, really. We're just going to suggest some blessings. Some blessings of this text. Well, here's the first. It's progress. It's progress. This is not a static text, is it? There's increasing and decreasing. So there's progress. Isn't that what we long for in our Christian lives? Really. So many times we look at our Christian life and we say, is this going anywhere? Have I made any progress, really, this last year? And here's the text that helps us. Here's the blessing that comes of increasing and decreasing. It's progress. Here's joy 
Look at chapter 3, verse 29. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. I'm John. I'm just the voice. I'm the best man. I'm not the bridegroom, but I am so joyful. That's what it should be like for us. When Jesus gets the glory, when he is exalted, we rejoice. We rejoice. When we hear of someone being converted, maybe we led them. Maybe we brought them to church. Maybe we did this, that and the other. But it ain't what we've done that matters. It's what Jesus has done. And we just love that truth. And we rejoice in it. So there's joy. There's progress. Uh, I think there's contentment here as well. John, I think, displays a contentment. I, I'm, I'm prepared to be this. I, 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 don't, I don't want to be anything other than what, what I've been called to be. I'm content with that. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not into even loosing his sandal strap. And I'm content with that. Contentment is a problem with the Christian life, isn't it? Problem with us. Contentment. We do wrestle with that. But his contentment, he's increasing. I'm decreasing. That's how it should be. Contentment. And we are lifted, really, to the highest. The highest, really, is this whole matter. John, Jesus says, there was no one like him. Jesus' estimation of John was very high. Well, what was John like? He was like this, where Jesus was constantly increasing and he was constantly decreasing. And Jesus revered John, didn't he? He said, there's no one like him. There's no one like him. Are you going to be a Christian? There's no one like you, quite like you, because you're following this text. Now, I'm not going to refer to it or read it, but um, in Spurgeon's... Uh, autobiography. We had this week a talk from Paul Brunning about Spurgeon's depressions. And I don't really know the story, but there was a terrible thing that happened in the Surrey Gardens Music Hall, where he was preaching to 10,000 people, and some idiots shouted out fire in the back, wanted to disturb it. People ran for the exits, a number of people were killed, had tremendously detrimental effect upon Spurgeon's mental health and so on. And, and Paul read something from here which was, which was really helpful and I asked him where it was from and he, and he told me. And uh, he was walking in the garden with his wife of one of the deacons. Uh, he was there just for some rest and so on. And uh, he suddenly stopped and uh, he said, Dearest, this is to his wife, how foolish I have been why, what does it matter what becomes of me if the Lord shall be glorified? What does it matter what becomes of me if the Lord be glorified? Let's sing our last hymn, shall we? Oh, Jesus Christ,
grow thou in me, and all things else recede. Quite clearly, this is based on this, on this text. we would just honestly um, really come to pray that make this poor self grow less and less be thou my life and aim O make me daily through thy grace more suited more ready more willing to bear thy name please help us Lord this is a battleground these things are difficult but there are such blessings in this Christian life we ask for your help down through this coming year and pray these things that you may be honoured and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.